Welcome to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. I'm glad you found us. My name is Tony Piles, and I'm the pastor here. I pray this recording brings you encouragement and growth in Christ, and we would love for you to join us in person anytime you are in town. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for our current schedule of worship and Bible studies. And may God bring you blessing through what you're about to hear. Thank you. Which is from Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 27. Hear now God's word. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Please be seated. Lord God, would you open our eyes this morning that we may behold wonderful things in your law. In Jesus' name, amen. What does a manner of life worthy of the gospel of Christ look like? What does a manner of life worthy of the gospel look like? We don't have to fully answer that this morning because Paul will go on for three more chapters. And as we'll see, this paragraph is why he's written the letter. We will have some time to develop that. But, but that's a driving question for us to consider this morning. Up to this point in the letter, one may have the impression that, that Paul doesn't have much in the way of instruction to write to the Philippians. They need an update on his trials and imprisonment. He needs to send them a thank you. He's been happy to offer some encouragement along the way. But now we come to a command. And in fact, what is probably the central thesis of the whole epistle. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. There are several arresting features of Paul's command at this juncture. One is this word only that he begins with. As though this is the one thing he's desperately trying to get across to the church at Philippi. 
Philippians, if you get nothing else from my letter, hear this. But there's another way that this word only is striking. Because if we've been tracking with Paul, if we've been paying attention as we read chapter 1, he's been using a great deal of all and every words, more than he usually does. Look with me at chapter 1. See in verse 1, he says, to all the saints, not to the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, but to all the saints with the overseers and deacons. In verse 3, he says, with all remembrance, or every remembrance. In verse 4, he starts to pile on with this language, saying, always, in every prayer of mine, for you all. Verse 7, he says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all. Paul can use different words for you, just one of you, and you, the lot of you. But he goes beyond that. Right? He's, he's saying, all y'all there. For you are all partakers. In verse 8, he says, I yearn for you all. In verse 9, he says, with knowledge and all discernment. Verse 13, he talks about the whole imperial guard and to all the rest. But then verses 14 and 15, he says, most of the brothers and some indeed. Verse 18, he's back to saying, in every way. Verse 20, with full or with all courage. Now, as always, in the verse 25, he says, um, I will remain and continue with you all. This persistent emphasis in chapter 1 is, is maybe our first hint that things are not altogether as they should be or could be in the church at Philippi. Why does Paul have to lean so hard on this group of words in this chapter? A second arresting feature of Paul's command is the verb he chooses to use. Paul is often reminding us to walk in a manner that that corresponds to our calling. He does it in Ephesians and Colossians and in 1 Thessalonians. But walk is his normal way of reminding us. Walk in a manner that is worthy. And that's not the word he uses here. Instead, he uses a word that deliberately brings to mind the roles and responsibilities of, of citizens in a society or a, a commonwealth. And he's playing on the status of the Philippians as citizens because Philippi is a Roman 
city. It's really awkward to try and load that into the way we translate it in, in our English translations. So it often gets reduced to conduct yourselves. And then it's left to pastors and teachers to, to explain that word. But if you happen to be looking over your neighbor's shoulder at their translation, you, you might even see something like, you must live as citizens of heaven. As our English translations wrestle with how to, how to capture this one word without turning it into a paragraph. Many of the Philippians are, are Roman citizens by virtue of their birth in this once famous city. But Paul's choice of language reminds them of their citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. A kingdom whose claims trump any allegiance they may have to the state, and which will put them in inevitable conflict with the empire. It's also reminding them of their common citizenship, which we'll come back to, the unity that they should have because they can look across the aisle or down the pew and see people who are citizens, people who are not citizens, who all belong to this city, but they have a closer relationship with one another than they have to those who, who share the same status they have as individuals relative to the Roman state. And we'll, we'll return to that. The third arresting feature of this command is, is the clear implication that without our careful attention, without watching and guarding and obeying, our conduct and our identity might come to be at odds with one another. In other words, if we are in Christ, that should be evident in our outward conduct. Those things should correspond to one another. Yet Paul must command and remind, and the Philippians must be on their guard, as we must, lest some dissonance develop there. So there we have Paul's command. Only let your manner of life be worthy of of the gospel of Christ. What does that look like? Well, we have the rest of the letter, but in the rest of this paragraph, Paul gives us a glimpse and he tells us that it looks like standing firm because God's judgment is certain and because suffering is his gracious Let's spend a little bit of time looking at these things. Standing firm, certain judgment, and suffering as a gracious gift. First in the second half of verse 27, and then in the beginning of 28. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm. Standing firm in one spirit. 
Note Paul's recognition that this is a little easier if he's there. But they have the responsibility, whether he's there or not, that they must stand firm in one spirit. How are they to stand firm? By striving together. Side by side. With one mind, striving for the faith of the gospel. There are lots of ways we can strive. There are lots of things toward which we can strive. And sometimes our striving can drive a wedge in the church. As we strive after careers, or we strive after children, or we strive after ambition. So Paul urges the Philippians to strive together for the gospel. With one mind, striving side by side. A striving that takes cooperation, a striving that takes note of our fellowship with one another. That we're with brothers and sisters, that we're part of a family working toward a common goal. Paul uses that imagery on purpose. Because that's hard. It's easy for divisions to crop up within a family. But he urges them to strive for the gospel with one mind. That focus on the gospel helps with fostering and forging that one mind and that side by side striving. Not side against side striving, but side by side striving for that common goal. How often have we seen it? Sometimes in the small scale within a congregation, sometimes on the world stage as whole denominations may succeed in striving side by side for something other than the gospel. And over time, it all comes apart. So Paul urges the Philippians to stand firm by striving together, but also to stand firm without fear, not frightened in anything by your opponents. They're to stand firm by striving and by not because God is in control because they can face things with full courage as Paul does as he has already held himself up as an example to them earlier in the chapter now he urges them to face things in the same way not because Paul is awesome Because Jesus is. Not because suffering is amazing. 
Because the gospel is. Not because suffering is certain, although it is. But because judgment is. We'll speak of that in a moment. But throughout this urging them to stand firm, to stand firm by striving together, to stand firm by not fearing, you see him urging them to stand firm together. In one spirit, with one mind, side by side. As a church in a Roman city, a busy, somewhat famous Roman city, you have Roman citizens who enjoy status and privilege and some measure of wealth, perhaps. You also have people who are not Roman citizens, who do not enjoy privilege, who do not have wealth. You have people from all manner of different ethnic backgrounds. We, we focus so often in the New Testament because it was such a difficult point on the relationship between Jews and non-Jews as they come to Christ. But there are all kinds of other divisions as well. And if there are not many Jews in Philippi, yet there are all kinds of people from different backgrounds, from different families, from different cultures, and they gather around the gospel. But all of that identity that they bring with them can cause tension. And so Paul urges them in all of these ways to be unified. Because it's hard. But it should be true. It should be true of the church that those who are not like us but are our brothers and sisters in Christ are closer to us than those who are like us but do not belong to us to Jesus. Let's put some teeth on that. You should be closer to Ole Miss and Alabama fans who love Jesus than LSU fans who don't. We're a few months from that really hitting home, I think. Think about that. Think about that in the context of a Roman city where peoples who were at war with one another are gathering around the Lord's table together. Not just all kinds of personalities, but people who a generation before had taken up arms against one another, whose grandfathers had killed each other in battle, eating of the same loaf and drinking of the same cup. Paul's not addressing this because it's hard because that guy gets on my nerves, although that's true. And we need to address this in that arena as well. 
He's speaking into places where there can be and often are deep and entrenched divisions. He says the blood of Christ brings unity that should show in our fellowship, in our love for one another, and in our cooperation around the gospel. So stand firm. Stand firm together. And he gives us two further motivations. Why should we stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, side by side with those people? And unafraid. Because God's judgment is certain. Look with me at verse 28. Paul says, Not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. We often think about God's judgment as something that frightens and worries us. And sometimes it should. To drive us back to Jesus and remind us of the forgiveness that we enjoy and the, and the judgment that we would be exposed to if we were not covered by the blood of Christ. But the certainty of God's judgment should also bring us hope. I remember my friend. Uh, when I was teaching a class, I had a student, Peter, who was um, a Sudanese refugee. And as we were, uh, we were going through a class on Isaiah, there are all these passages in Isaiah about God's judgment, and especially God's judgment on the enemies of the people of God. And as a Western Christian who had gone through my life never really experiencing real opposition to my faith. He made fun of in high school. It's not the same thing as being hunted down. We would read through these passages and, and Peter, who had fled from the Sudan, Peter, with whom I would read headlines that were coming out of South Sudan at the time, about the murder of Christians. We would pray together. Peter was able to share with me a completely different perspective on these passages in Isaiah. Because they brought him comfort and hope. Because they pointed him to the assurance of God's salvation of his people and of the destruction of their enemies. That all things will be put right. Because God's judgment is certain. And there's an element of that in what Paul is telling them here. Because the Philippians have opponents. We, we begin to see that 
that their experience is somewhat parallel to Paul's. As they're facing opposition because of who they are in Christ. Paul can remind them, he can tell them that they don't need to be afraid. And as they stand up and face that opposition without fear. That points their opponents to God's judgment. It's a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. Perhaps God will even use that to take some of their opponents and bring them into the church. Why should we stand firm? together at that. Because God's judgment is certain. Destruction of the opponents of Christ's church and the assurance of our salvation. And that from God. And there's Why else should we stand firm? We have again something Paul's hit on a couple of times in this chapter. That hard pill to swallow. We should stand firm because suffering is God's gracious gift. Suffering is God's gracious gift. It has been granted to you. That for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. You have this conflict that I'm engaged in, that you hear about. Now you're engaged in as well. Real conflict with real opponents that put you in real danger. And by the way, this is God's gift to you. This is God's gift to you. God is asking you to, challenging you, to commanding you to stand firm together in the knowledge that judgment is certain. Because God has granted this to you for your good and for his glory. You'll ask me, how is that suffering that God has granted for our good? I don't know. I'll probably get myself into trouble if I try and venture into particulars and specific situations. But I can stand up here and I can follow Paul in trusting in God's goodness. Knowing that as we hold fast to Jesus, as we stand firm together, as we remember that judgment is clear and certain, perhaps along the way, God will use the suffering he brings to us To make us more like Jesus. 
and to teach us to depend on him. And in doing so, find him dependable. Beloved, let us stand firm in the knowledge that God's judgment is certain, knowing that in some way, suffering is granted to us for our Lord, especially in the difficult moments, would you remind us of our ability to cry out to you? Would you give us the strength to bear up under the suffering that you grant to us? And would you grant that we learn to trust you as Paul does, not because we love suffering or enjoy pain, but because we trust. You've been listening to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for more teaching and for our current schedule of events if you'd like to drop in. We pray this recording has been a blessing to you. Go in peace.